let's pray together again. Father, we thank you for your word. And we, we do come in humility, Lord, and as we often do, just want to ask for your help. We need your help to discern these truths. We uh, need the help of your spirit to understand what we read and to apply it to our lives. And so, Lord, would you come and teach us? Would you remove the distractions and barriers in our hearts, Lord, and help us instead simply receive your word uh, as it is, not the word of men, but the word of God. So we look to you now, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, research and experience has shown us that our expectations go a long way in determining our happiness. Now, the same set of circumstances could be perceived or experienced quite differently because of your expectations going in, right? If your expectations are sky high and they are not met, you may become disillusioned or discouraged, which is why many say that the key to happiness is simply lowering your expectations. <laughs> Don't expect a lot and you will be happier. You know, I'm an optimist uh, personally, but again, maybe the pessimists have it right. Anybody a pessimist here in the room? Yeah? Or a, a realist, as you say? Yeah. Maybe, maybe the pessimistic approach to life is right, because as I've heard, if you're a pessimist, then in every situation, you're either right or pleasantly surprised. <laughs> that might be a good way to go about it. Now, when it comes to following Jesus, I, I don't think that the Bible prescribes pessimism. I wouldn't put it that way. However, Jesus does want us to be quite aware going in about the, uh, what following him will entail. Right, so right at the get-go, he wants his disciples, his followers, to have accurate expectations about what is to come. And so in John 15, as we continue our walk through this gospel little by little here at the end of chapter 15, and we see him prepare his disciples uh, for difficult things ahead. You saw verse 18 already read aloud, but let's look at it again as it kind of sets the stage for our study this morning. It says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If the world hates you. Now, we're going to see as we read on that this isn't as much a possibility as it is a certainty. It's more as of when the world hates you. Jesus is going to make it clear that there will be uh, animosity from the world towards his disciples. That might be a little surprising for some of us. Maybe it's a little heavier tone from what we've seen the past few weeks, because uh, in the last few weeks of John, we've seen a lot of words about comfort and peace, right? Jesus promising his peace to be with his disciples, to send the Holy Spirit, another helper, an advocate to be with us. He's not going to leave us as orphans. In the first part of John chapter 15, he's told us to, uh, like a branch remains in the vine, remain in me, abide in me, remain in my love. You will bear much fruit and my joy will be in you and you'll be called friends of God. And there's all these wonderful truths that encourage our hearts. And then we reach the end of chapter 15 and the heading in my Bible of this section is the world hates the disciples. Say, so, well, Merry Christmas, Mike. 
goodness, this woof, you know, this is, this is a heavier word. And, and to set the context here, this is Jesus right again in the upper room here with his disciples uh, hours really before he goes to the cross. It's a section of the book of John known as uh, the farewell discourse where Jesus is uh, saying farewell, preparing his disciples for his coming death and departure and all that it will mean for them. And so he wants them to be aware that when persecution comes and opposition comes, they should not be surprised, but that their expectations should be set to include that. The Apostle Peter says something similar in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you know that passage, Peter writing to the early church says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial or ordeal that has come upon you as if something strange were happening to you. Similar idea here from Jesus. Don't get disillusioned or discouraged or surprised when opposition comes your way as my follower. It actually is quite natural, quite uh, to be expected, not surprised. Right? Like when you're going to the DMV, don't expect it to go smooth, right? Just set your expectations ahead of time. Or uh, when you go to dine at Taco Bell, right? Just like you can do that, but just be prepared. There's some consequences that will come in the hours ahead, okay? So just be ready. And so Jesus is saying, hey, uh, when it comes to following me, expect opposition. There will be friction between my people, my followers, and the world, And what we see then in the rest of the text is him explaining why that's the case. He's going to tell us a few reasons for that. Okay, look again at verse 18. It says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. So two main reasons in the text for opposition. And the first is this, expect opposition because of who you are. Expect opposition because of who you are. Jesus says to his disciples, you do not belong to the world. You're not of the world any longer. You're not from the world any longer. I have chosen you out of the world, he says. And then the end of verse 19, that is why the world hates you. And so Jesus is telling us that there, uh, for the Christian, is this fundamental change in identity. This fundamental change and transfer in citizenship. That our home has changed. Our identity, where we belong, where we call home, has changed. He says it once was in the world. Once we were of the world, from the world. And throughout the Gospel of John, we see that language of the world is usually used in a negative sense. The, the, the world of, of fallen humanity that has turned from God, rejected God, wanted to do things our own way, embraced darkness rather than light, rejected uh, the word of God and, and the ways of God, needing to be rescued. Right? Kind of laying out the human condition of our sin before a holy God. That we're dead in our sin, apart from Christ, separated from God, deserving judgment. But now, Jesus says, he has called us, his disciples, out of the world. That his disciples now have a new home, a new identity, transferred into a a new kingdom. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 1. 
says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So you see, our standing as human beings before God has been radically transformed if we are in Christ. Through faith in Christ, we have been transferred, rescued, brought out of the dominion of darkness and sin and death, and we've been brought into the kingdom of the Son. We have forgiveness of sins. We have been redeemed. And so we need to point out, as we often do, just a healthy biblical theology of conversion. I think about it. What happens when you are converted, when you become a Christian, when you first put your faith in Christ? What, what happens in that moment? A number of things, but we need to, to push away the sentiment that it's, well, just some surface changes, you know, make some minor tweaks and adjustments in my life. And I once, I was like an okay person, and now I'm like a little bit of a better person and try to, you know, do the command things like a little bit better now. That's not the way the Bible talks about conversion or, or being a Christian at all, right? It talks about this radical transfer, transformation, this radical change in identity, going from, from death to life, from being dead in our sin to being alive in Christ, from being uh, enemies of God, rebels running away from God to now being adopted as the very children of God. Right? That we're united to Christ through faith and in him. We have this new identity, being a part of the household of God, being able to call God our father, being forgiven of our sins, being justified by faith, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, citizens now of the kingdom. I think of back in Colorado, uh, Amber and I had some of our very dear friends, best friends, some of our best friends in the whole world. Um, His name is Scott and Fiona. We went through seminary together. He's now suffering for Jesus as a pastor in Hawaii and doing his thing out there. But at the the time, his wife wasn't an American citizen. She grew up in Australia and then uh, did some, her parents were missionaries overseas and so lived in Europe. And then they kind of later in life, she moved with Scott to to the States and he was an American citizen. She was not. But we remember back in seminary, we went to kind of her American citizenship ceremony. Okay, so she had been like working through the process to become an American citizen and um, for some time. And so there was like a day that came and it was like, hey, come down to the county, you know, office or whatever. And we're going to, she had her final test and kind of had this kind of swearing in ceremony, this whole deal that made her an American citizen. And it was, it was a really big deal, right? Because for her, there were some, some privileges and rights and realities that came with being an American citizen that she didn't have before. And so it was a big day, one to celebrate, one to invite friends. who wanted to say, Hey, now I am a, a citizen of this country. That was a big deal. And so in, in the same way, except even, even greater, much greater, our, our identity as citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of God, is radically transformational. Going from being strangers and enemies of God to belonging to his, his family. And we can look back throughout scripture and see this, this pattern throughout Old and New Testament that God calls a people to himself, that in God's redemptive plan, he says, I want to use people. I'm going to call people to myself out of the world. But what he does, he doesn't like zap them away to heaven, 
Right? Like you become a Christian and now, okay, we're going to put you on the bus to heaven, get you out of here. Um, he calls the people to himself out of the world, and then they are to live still in the world and be present in the world and have a, a purpose and a calling and a mission in the world to, to make God known uh, in, in a number of different ways. But, but the reality is where we're called to remain and yet be distinct, to stay in the world and yet be called out of the world. To be different. The biblical word for that is holiness. We're called to be holy, which is simply to be set apart, different, distinct, noticeably so. Uh, look at, for example, back to the Old Testament, how God uh, says this to his newly formed people, the nation of Israel, as he, he brings them out of slavery in Egypt, right? Pharaoh, Moses, let my people go. Red Sea, cross the Red Sea, out to freedom, heading towards the promised land. God says to his people in Leviticus 18, you must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord, your God. Elsewhere in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, God will tell his people that they are to be a holy people distinct. They're going to stand out from the rest of the world. So you see there in the book of Leviticus, God saying to his people, hey, and you're going to do things differently now. You're not to live as the Egyptians do and, and worship and believe and live as they do. You're supposed to follow me and my commands. And you're going into the land of Canaan and there's going to be some people there, some nations there that do things quite differently. And you're not to follow their ways either. You are to follow my commands. And you're going to obey my ways and my decrees. And thus, it's going to set you apart. And the nations around you are not going to look the way you do. And in so doing, the people of God will become a city on a hill. A city that shines in darkness, that shows the goodness of God to the world and calls people to know him. Uh, in 1958, the famous British professor and evangelical C.S. Lewis, many of us know him and love his work. He wrote a, a book, lesser known book called The Reflections on the Psalms. And in it, he comments on how in reading through the Hebrew scriptures and the Psalms, he sees how often they rejoice in the laws of God. How often they celebrate the commands of God. And we rejoice that his decrees are good and righteous. And we're so glad we have the word of God and his ways and his commands. And he, he points out, he's like, it's, it's, it feels a little odd to modern ears. It's not necessarily the way that we talk or, or would say things. And yet it's so clearly seen in scripture. And so he wrestles to understand this. Why is this the case? And in reflecting, he, he writes this about how the people of God, the Jewish people were surrounded by pagan nations that were skilled, he said, in constant cruelty. They were violent, right? often war and, and threat of invasion. And so there would often be this temptation at times to embrace the practices and live in the ways of the nations around them. You know, be absorbed into the dominant culture just to fit in a little bit easier. But then he said that the Jewish people would look at the nations around them and see the things that they celebrated and the things that they valued. Things like, he points out, sacred prostitution, sacred sodomy, babies thrown into the fire, child sacrifice to Molech and such. And he concludes that in looking at some of these, these horrible things around them, they look at the law of God and see how it shines with extraordinary radiance. 
how it's sweeter than honey, he wrote. Or if that metaphor, he says, does not suit us, who have not such a sweet tooth as all ancient peoples, partly because we have plenty of sugar. Instead, he say, let us say like mountain water, like fresh air after a dungeon, like sanity after a nightmare. The people of God celebrated the ways of God, his commands, his word, because in his word we find laws that are marked by justice and love and purity and truth and mercy and, and protecting the vulnerable and care for those in need. <clears throat> God's people were to follow his ways and thus be a light to a dark world. And so Jesus is continuing this thought, right? That, that my people are to be called out, the, the chosen ones, the, the holy people of God, salt and light in the world to be noticeable. However, they wouldn't any longer be identified by Jewish identity markers, circumcision or Sabbath or the dietary laws or so on, but by what? Commitment to Christ. Disciples of Jesus, the church, are this chosen people. First Peter chapter two says as much. We, the church, New Testament church, are chosen people, holy nation. All these identity markers or these uh, phrases used to describe the people of Israel in the Old Testament are applied to the New Testament church. <clears throat> and so notice with me that, that following Jesus is not just about some private, you know, little um, thing between you and Jesus, you know, that you just kind of do in your private way and it's not connected to anything or anybody else. Sometimes as modern listeners, you know, that's how we picture faith. It's like this private thing and just me and Jesus and not so concerned about anybody else. And following Jesus is, is personal, but it's not private. And so we see that as, as followers of Jesus, it's intended to be this, this public, uh, really visible, noticeable reality. And not just you personally having been transformed, but now you're part of this new family, this, this new community, this new people who, who live differently and have this distinct presence in the world. And historians will look back at the early church and point out that absolutely was the case. Uh, author Larry Hurtado, we've mentioned his work before and some of these ideas before, but he, he writes about uh, Christian distinctiveness in the ancient world. Uh, he wrote a book actually called Destroyer of the Gods, which you know, sounds like a Marvel movie or something, Destroyer of the Gods. And yet he talks about how these early Christians, followers of Jesus, the early church looked so different from the world around them. And yet it was incredibly attractive. And he, he writes some of the ways that believers stood out. And I think I'm going to run through these real quick because I think it's really helpful for us as modern day people to look back at the early church and see the way they stood out and how pretty much all of them still apply today, that we should stand out in the same ways. And the first thing that Hurtado notes is that uh, followers of Jesus stood out because of their radical commitment to obeying Jesus as Lord. Right? There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So they were unapologetic in their commitment to Christ, that our, our, our uh, obedience is to him. They got in a lot of trouble, actually, because they would go around and say things like, well, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord, and so we're not going to burn incense to Caesar, and we're not going to bow down to Caesar, and we're not going to worship Caesar, we, we worship Jesus, and many of them were killed because of that. 
So, uh, radical commitment to Jesus and him alone. And this identity uh, being the people of God surround, uh, centered upon the work and person of Christ transcended all other identity markers. And so you had other identities in the ancient world, like your, your race, your class, uh, gender, your tribe, your nation, you know, all these different things that marked who you were. And all of a sudden now, those were all secondary to faith in Christ. Your identity in Christ was primary, what we rallied around, unified around. And so all those other things were still important parts of who you are, but were no longer the primary reality about who you are. It was your identity in Christ. Related to that, the second thing that Hurtado notes that was really distinctive about the early church was they were a, a multiracial movement. Bringing startling unity to people of different ethnicities and nations. No longer being identified by, well, I worship the God of my people and my tribe and my city and so on. But people from, from all places, every tribe, tongue, and nation is called to worship the one true God. And so you'll read through the New Testament and you'll see that actually the new early church had to work quite hard at uh, racial and ethnic unity. You'll read this in the letters. Jews and Gentiles coming together. A lot of issues there. And yet it was central to their life saying, we are the, the one new humanity, the new people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation unified in Christ. It mattered then. It still matters greatly today. Third point, the, the church was marked by forgiveness and non-retaliation. Right? So compared to the violence and the, maybe the cruelty of the surrounding uh, nations and peoples, if you went and killed a Christian, they wouldn't rally a mob and come and kill you back. And that was a big deal. Yeah, that was radical. They practiced non-retaliation. Vengeance is the Lord's. We're going to leave that up to him, and we're going to love and serve our enemies and not go kill them. Stood out. Uh, fourth, the early church had a, a radical commitment to the poor and suffering. They had a great social concern for the needy, mobilizing to care for orphans and widows, to care for those who were sick. Right? You've heard of stories before how during the plagues and such, people would flee the cities because they didn't want to get sick. And it was the Christians who stuck around, said people are dying and suffering. We'll be here and care for them, even if that means losing our own lives. Fifth, the early church was committed to the sanctity of life. They were uh, staunchly opposed to abortion. Uh, they saw the image of God in every human being, no matter how young or old. Uh, and often in the ancient world, even, abortion maybe wasn't as common, but infanticide was. And so uh, babies would be born. If they weren't wanted, they'd be left out by the trash heaps or, um, you know, to be exposed to the elements and they would die there. Or they'd get picked up by slave traders and, you know, raised and put into slavery or so on. And it was the church that said every child is made in the image of God. And so we're going to care for them. We're going to bring them into our homes. And we're going to raise them as our, our sons and daughters. And sixth, the early church uh, had a radical um, sex ethic. So they were really, looked really different from the world around them in the way that they viewed sexuality. And they said very clearly, unapologetically, no sex outside of heterosexual marriage. They're like, that's it. And the world around them was like, what? <laughs> 
Uh, they didn't like that, especially for men, because in the Roman world, it was common for men. Uh, married women had to stay faithful to their husbands, but uh, men were said they have such, you know, a potent sex drive. They just have to get these urges out like, a, you know, a physical appetite. You just have to eat. And so they just had to go, you know, and, and sleep around with slaves or prostitutes or children or whatever. That was just normal in the ancient world. And Christians came along and said, well, actually, wait a second. Uh, no, that's not how God has designed sexuality. It's between a man and a woman in marriage and only there. And they were very clear about that. And so as I lay these out, you can see that um, not all of these jive very well with our modern day values and assumptions in the surrounding culture. And yet these commitments all still should be true of the church today. And it's going to make us look different. And it's going to make people suspicious of us or say mean things about us or to stand out in the world. And not being contrarian just, just for the sake of being contrarian, but because of our commitment to the word of God and the lordship of Christ over every area of life in obedience to him and him alone. Because we're committed to God's word and his ways, believing that his ways are best for us and for the good and flourishing of the world. So it's not that we're looking for a fight or going out of our way to be rude or contrarian, but when our basic commitments as the people of God, standing on the word of God, uh, will lead us into friction with the world because these values and ways will be out of step with the world around us. Right? When we are people of integrity, we refuse to, to cheat on the test. We're in our businesses as businessmen and women, we use honest business practices rather than cheating to get ahead. When we tell the truth, even when it's inconvenient, when we're uh, people of purity and refuse to engage in the, the dehumanizing reality of pornography or, or hookup culture, when we refuse to contribute to the endless toxic spewing of rage that is social media towards political opponents. When we abstain from that, when everyone at the table maybe is laughing or gossiping at a crude joke or slandering another and we don't participate because of our commitment to Christ, there will be friction. And if not right, you know, if not outright persecution, in our area, at least ostracism and exclusion and sneers, perhaps. Jesus is saying, hey, as you live this out, as you follow me, there will be hatred, scorn from the world, like a, a virus in your body. You know, when you get sick, there's a virus in your body and, you know, the healthy functioning part of your body is like, that virus, that's, that's not us. Let's go attack it and get it out of here. It doesn't belong here. In the same way, the rest of the world will say, hey, the, the Christians, kind of out of place here, don't, don't belong here, out of sorts, and we'll move against them. And so the pressure today is high, isn't it, for Christians to adopt the culture's values and norms? Isn't the pressure high to relieve some of that anxiety and smooth things out a little bit so we don't have to stand out so much and it's not so uncomfortable? Maybe we're, we're tempted to relieve a bit of that pressure by assimilating into the culture 
and embracing, whether it's, you know, uh, values on the political right or the political left or somewhere in between, just embracing the ways of the world so that things are a little, be, uh, a little bit smoother for us in the world. Right? Jesus says as much in verse 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Right? Pretty simple logic, right? If you looked like the world and thought like the world and belonged to the world, things would go smooth for you. You'd fit in. There'd be less problems. And yet the church would also become irrelevant. And we'd serve no purpose here, right? If we, if we offer nothing unique to the world, why, why should the world care? You know, why, why would people get out of bed and come to church on a Sunday morning, right? Come here and I'm going to tell you just to believe everything you already believe and think how you already think. And I can tell you anything different. You're great. Just keep doing what you're doing. Like, well, great. Well, I don't need to come to church for you to tell me that. <laughs> I can just go play golf or sleep in or whatever. You, you see what I'm saying? So, Culture doesn't need us just to parrot back everything they already believe. Yeah, you're you know. What they need is they need to see something different. Something that stands out. Something that only Christ can offer them. Right? Where else are they going to hear the gospel of Christ crucified? If not for the people of God and God's word. And so, we should expect opposition because of who, who we are as the people of God. And I don't say this to make, make it seem like, you know, there, sometimes we get like a martyr complex and like under every rock, we're like, I don't know, that guy didn't smile at me. So, ah, persecution! I'm a, you know, I, I don't think we need to see persecution under every rock, but we need to realize that there will be friction as we follow Jesus in our culture. Jesus gives us another reason for the persecution or expected opposition. Verse 20 says, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. <clears throat> if they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So second point, expect opposition because of who you follow. Or maybe more grammatically correct, whom you follow? The one you follow? Expect opposition because of Christ, basically. Look at verse 18, right? He repeats what he said earlier. The world hated me first. So opposition will come because of the one you follow. Look at how the world will treat me, Jesus says. He's going to be arrested, beaten, crucified, opposed left and right from religious leaders. In verse 20, he says, a servant is not greater than his master. So how the master goes, so the servants will go, right? Isn't that logical to... To follow, uh, distinguished professor and author Craig Blomberg writes this, no loyal follower of one who is crucified by hatred can expect lifelong exemption from opposition. And no loyal follower of one who is crucified by hatred can expect lifelong exemption from opposition. It's pretty sound logic, right? <laughs> if our master and Lord Jesus was crucified, killed, rejected. We probably should expect similarly to be treated with such opposition from the world because we bear his name. Look again at verse 21. He says, they will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. In other words, it's not really about you. You know, the opposition, the hatred, it's not really about you. He says, it's because of my name. Because you bear my name, there is this opposition. And so if we go about our business seeking to love God and love people 
and, and obey Christ, opposition will come. And Jesus says, it's, really, it's because of me. Because you bear my name. Right? Have you ever been in a situation where maybe someone's reaction to you, um, just the math on it doesn't add up? You know, like you get really heated or frustrated or something, and the animosity seems unwarranted given the circumstances. You know, like their response is like up here, and you're like, wow, really? We were just like right here. And it makes you think, you know, maybe this is not just about me. Maybe there's more going on for this person. I've struck a nerve, and there's, this is connected to something bigger going on in their life that I'm maybe not aware of. And it's like, it's not really about me. That's what Jesus is saying. There's a spiritual reality here. The people will come against you, and part of what is driving that is disdain, not for you, but for, for the Lord. And you as his representative. Verse 21, it's because of my name, he says. And, and people may not even be conscious of that at the time. You know, they might not be aware of that, but, but kind of mixed into the motivations of their heart is really Jesus saying this animosity towards him and the Father. But look again at verses 22 to 25. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they'd not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen. And yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. So you see here, Jesus is saying that this animosity is not only directed at him, but at his father. And it's not really rational, verse 25 says. They hated me without reason, which is a reference to the Psalms. But Jesus is saying, even though I came and, and did all these, these good works among them, and they saw with their own eyes, even, even still, they hated me and rejected me. And thus revealing, highlighting their, their sin and depravity. And yet, we have to pause long enough to see this. We see this powerful picture, this amazing truth of the gospel here in this text. Think about it. The world, Jesus says, has hated him. The world hated me. They're going to persecute you because of me. Verse 23, they hate my father as well. The world will reject Jesus. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to be spit on and mocked and arrested and beaten and killed. The world goes on hating him and his father. And yet, God so loved the world. See The world hates God, and yet God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Do you see the, the, the heart of God on display in this text? Jesus dying for the world who hates him. He said, the world will hate you, disciples, but, you know, take heart. It hated me first. But God so loved the world. I mean, it's hard enough for us to do good to those who do good to us. But we see that God does good to those who hated him to those who persecuted him, rejected him, shamed him, and ultimately killed him. What an amazing picture of the love of God. Our God who, who sends rain and sunshine on the just and the unjust. Who blesses even those who hate him. Who would even go to the cross to die for those who hate him. 
Romans 5.10 says that, that while we were God's enemies, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. While we were enemies of God, we were running the opposite direction. We were rebels. We were dead in our sin. The world, John tells us, hated Jesus and his father. Even still, he came for us. To rescue us and save us. So friends, if you're here this morning and you hate God, know that he loves you. and Died for you. And maybe you say, well, that's, that sounds kind of harsh, Pastor. I, don't, I mean, I, I'm not the best person in the world, but do I, I don't know if I really hate God. You know, maybe you're like, I don't know if I'd put it that way. And it's showing that there are, yeah, there are plenty of people in the world who, who hate him. That's the reality of what's going on in our hearts when we don't trust in him. We hate his rule and his reign and his ways, and we want to you know, do things our own way. Jesus says, there are plenty of people in the world who hate me and hate my father. And maybe you're one of them. And if that's you, would you see the truth of the gospel? That that same God that you hate is the God who loves you with a sacrificial love, dying for you, for your sins, and then inviting you to come and trust in him and find forgiveness of your sins and new life in his name, be adopted into the family of God, be a son and a daughter of God. Isn't that true of every Christian? We were, we, we were rebels, dead in our sin, running the opposite direction from God. And he and his grace and mercy saved us and brought us into his family. And now we're his beloved children. What an amazing truth. And then he says, verse 27, it's not ultimately going to be your wisdom or winsome. And so, yes, let's go pray and love our neighbors and share the gospel. And yet when he does the heavy lifting, if we could put it that way. So friends, expect opposition because of who you are and who you follow. But we remember that it's all worth it. Even with the challenges, right? Maybe you're like, why in the world are we signing up for this opposition? I don't know about this. Uh, It's worth it. Uh, because in Christ, uh, we have eternal life. Because in Christ, we have adoption into the family of God. Because in Christ, we've gone forgiven. We've been given uh, eternal joy and now life in him forever. And so we will take things as they come, come what may, because we've been rescued and saved by Christ. And so we have a chance just now in in closing to take the elements together of communion as a church family and remember what it is that binds us together, what it is that that makes us ultimately stand out as distinct from the world, and that's our commitment to Christ as Lord. And we take these elements to remember his broken body given for us on the cross, his shed blood given for us and for the forgiveness of sins on the cross so I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll do what, what followers of Jesus have done for uh, centuries and centuries and centuries, going back to the very words of Christ, remember him together. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and these reminders this morning. Opposition, it won't necessarily be easy because the world stands opposed to you. And yet we thank you for your great love for the world, your love for 
for us, that you saved us, not because of works, but because of your grace through faith. Thank you. And so these elements remind us that that we were desperately needy, in need of rescue from sin and death and judgment. And through Christ, you've forgiven us and saved us. So we remember you together, Lord Jesus. We thank you together as your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant. My blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me.